Hello and welcome to this episode of Deep Medicine with me your host Alexander Gray, the Chief Medical Officer of Idea Pharma. In this episode I had a chance to chat with Erica Kuzminskater who works on the Netherlands study of depression and anxiety with a particular focus on the impact of childhood trauma on the development of affective disorders in adults. This is a fascinating topic that's garnered much interest in recent years and during this podcast I had a chance to discuss with her what is known and unknown about the relationships between different types of childhood trauma and the development of these disorders and also discuss a little bit around the neurobiology that may underpin these relationships. Okay, so I would like to welcome uh, Erica Kuzminskater, uh, who works uh, in the Netherlands Study of Depression and Anxiety, NESDA, um, which is a longitudinal study in adults uh, looking at how uh, diagnosis happens in these uh, patients over time and how that relates back to uh, childhood trauma. Uh, and there's been a lot of papers published from that study and obviously there are other studies that have considered this topic and I think this is a absolutely critical uh, piece of research. Uh, this, this matters a huge amount to understand during those formative years what happens to children and then how that plays out in terms of mental health and adulthood. Um, so welcome and, and please do introduce yourself to, to the audience. Thank you, Alex. My pleasure to be here. Um, thank you for inviting. Um, so, yes, my name is Erika Kuzminskede. I am uh, currently a PhD student uh, at the Amsterdam University Medical Center, Department of Psychiatry. And indeed, I have been working for the last four years uh, in the Netherlands study of depression and anxiety, and mostly focusing on uh, childhood trauma, how it impacts mental health in adults, what are the potential underlying mechanisms of that, and what could we do about it in a clinical setting? Fantastic. Well, uh, welcome indeed. Um, so could you just tell us a bit more about NESDA in terms of the way it's set up? Because you've already alluded to the fact that it's also looking mechanistically as well as, you know, clinically what's, what's uh, yes. happened to, to, to these people over time. And just give us a feel for the way it was set up and the kind of outcomes that it, it has looked at and will look at. So NESDA in general, as you said, it is a longitudinal and naturalistic case control study. Uh, it was set up by the PI professor Brenda Pennings to really examine etiology course and consequences of depressive and anxiety disorders. So it includes people with current and remitted DSM-4-based depressive and anxiety disorders, but also has healthy control group. Uh, so it's people who are free of lifetime psychopathology. And the assessment started back in 2004, and they were continued for over 13 years. Um, and the last assessment was on like in 2019. Studies very multidisciplinary. So it does have a lot of data on like clinical characteristics, but also somatic health and healthy lifestyle behaviors, ambulatory mood, uh, various biological markers um, in blood, saliva, brain imaging, and also social and environmental risk factors for uh, depressive and anxiety disorders, such as childhood trauma experience. So uh, childhood trauma, maybe I will a bit introduce how it was measured and conceptualized in NEST as well, because that's important to kind of set the stage for it. Uh, so childhood trauma in ESDA was assessed twice at the baseline and at a four-year follow-up using childhood trauma interview, also known as a CDI, uh, and at a four-year follow-up using childhood trauma questionnaire known as a CDQ. Both of them assess childhood trauma retrospectively, so adults really report on their experience of it, and it measures either emotional, physical, sexual abuse or emotional, physical neglect before the age of 16. And most of the research on childhood trauma within NESDA focuses on the CTI because it was assessed at the baseline, so it has largest completeness, of course. And we often make uh, the severity, cumulative severity score, because people can indicate not only the um, experience of childhood trauma, but also how often it was actually experienced. And and um, am I right in thinking also it, it classifies, there are different classifiers for the type of trauma that they underwent, whether it's emotional, physical, sexual abuse, um, and as you say, the frequency, because I think there's a lot of detail, isn't there, about the kind of patterns of, of uh, childhood trauma that an individual may have uh, und undergone. Yeah, in general, there, there there's a lot of research about various early life experiences. 
Um, a lot of research points to the fact that childhood trauma, including these specific types, shows the most profound impact on mental health outcomes. So this is something that we really focus in our study on. And indeed, the severity seems to really play a key role because there is huge comorbidity between various childhood trauma types. And also childhood trauma often really reoccurs, especially in emotional maltreatment case. Fantastic. So I know um, one of the things that um, you, you then were able to examine in quite a lot of uh, depth was about the relationship between childhood trauma and the different kinds of trauma and the frequency of trauma and then different types of mood disorders because obviously you've talked about anxiety and depression and that's the focus of the the, the study rather than you know, psychotic illnesses for example um so can you just tell us a bit more about what you've found there in terms of specificity around particular types of trauma and then particular types of, of mood disorders so in general there is a bit of evidence uh, also outside NESDA that childhood trauma could be related with some specific mood disorders, such as bipolar disorder or melancholic depression. But much more research points to the fact that childhood trauma and especially severe childhood trauma is actually linked with a variety of mood disorders and especially its comorbidity. Um, and in line with this, in NESDA, we saw that individuals with childhood trauma really showed experience of uh, various depressive and anxiety disorders, but especially their comorbidity. For example, for individuals uh, with severe childhood trauma experience, uh, they had, I think, the odds ratios of nine for the comorbid disorder. So, so they were like nine times more likely to have comorbid depressive and anxiety disorder as compared to people without childhood trauma exposure. Um, in a more recent uh, study, we also looked at whether childhood trauma could be associated with more specific uh, symptomatology of depression and anxiety, uh, which we thought also is really interesting and relevant. And we actually saw that childhood trauma was associated with various depressive and anxiety symptomatology uh, from total depressive anxiety and worry to fear phobic. Uh, the strongest association was for mood cognitive depressive symptoms, uh, so problems with concentration, decision making, especially interpersonal sensitivity, which is a very known risk factor for the onset of depression and maintenance of depression. And these symptoms were really elevated over time, over the six year follow up, uh, so it really indicated increased chronicity. That's extremely interesting that there's obviously that degree of specificity about the type of presentation of the symptomatology as well. Um, just going back into the different kinds of trauma that people might have experienced in childhood, I noticed in, in one of the publications that emotional neglect seemed to be a, a very strong driver in terms of onset and, and recurrence of depressive or, uh, or comorbid disorder. And of course, as I mentioned, you look not only at emotional neglect, but physical abuse, sexual abuse, other um, types of, of trauma that a child may have under, undergone. To me, it's very interesting about how strongly the emotional neglect in, index is in here. Could you say a bit more about because I, I, I think maybe listeners might be surprised because they may be more used to hearing about, you know, physical and sexual abuse and, and how that may play out and, and relationships with things like PTSD, for example, and this emotional piece, maybe not something that they, they know as much about. So what how, how do those relationships look in, in, in the in the trial? Yeah, indeed. Uh, we actually saw that uh, some specific types of childhood trauma could be stronger related to specific psychopathology types. Um, and the most consistent evidence in NESDA is for emotional neglect and emotional abuse because they're also very comorbid um, and often also researched together. So, for example, for um, emotional neglect, there were really strong associations uh, for MDD, uh, social phobia, dysthemia and much stronger than for other types of childhood trauma. Uh, but I think what's really important also to note that these findings usually are found when all childhood trauma types are considered together in one model. So you really account for the comorbidity between the childhood trauma types. Um, and in reality, childhood trauma type 
almost never stands alone. Uh, as I said, it's really hard comorbidity between emotional neglect and emotional abuse. It's more than 80% in NESDA. And uh, between emotional maltreatment and other types of abuse, such as physical or sexual, it's 30 to 40% overlap. So I would say, of course, these associations are interesting, uh, but I wouldn't say that they are very clinically relevant just because emotional neglect is the most prevalent type. It is very comorbid with other types, and it's also very quick, frequently occurring very often. So it's a very severe type of childhood trauma. And when we analyze these childhood trauma types separately uh, in separate models, allowing for this comorbidity to be there, then we see that all types are really showing adverse outcomes on psychopathology. Yeah, 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 that's really interesting because I mean, the, 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 the devil's a bit in the detail, isn't, as you say, that, that there's overlap here and it may be difficult to strongly attribute certain types of abuse to certain outcomes. I mean, what was interesting to me in reading this, though, is that there's at least a tendency in that direction around the emotional piece, um, which, as I say, may be surprising to, to some people. I mean, to me, it really reinforces that some of the areas that perhaps traditionally we may not have seen as abuse, actually, uh, may be highly harmful to children and may have a very strong impact on their trajectory over, over time. I was very interested in what you said about, um, you know, social phobia and, and, you know, that link back to emotional abuse. So is there a sort of hypothesis there around, you know, you might be actually setting the stage for people's emotional dysfunction and their relationships with people around them? Is that something that you saw there or? <clears throat> So I think overall that the idea behind emotional maltreatment especially is that people seem with emotional maltreatment experience to have uh, emotion regulation difficulties, also self-reflecting processing difficulties. They seem to be overly sensitive to uh, various social um, like interactions in everyday life, uh, everyday stress, and they really seem to be um, sensitive to like perceived criticism of others uh, and so on. So they are a bit more uh, kind of vulnerable, I think, to various everyday life events. And that could really increase their vulnerability to develop such specific disorders, such as social phobia, for example. Um, but yeah, I do agree. I think emotional maltreatment is of particular importance just because it is a very severe type of childhood trauma and it's unfortunately less visible in childhood. So it's much more difficult to actually uh, recognize it and try to intervene and these people usually you know end up uh, like childhood trauma maltreatment emotional maltreatment is not maybe really uh, recognized in childhood and then people have to grow up with it uh, up to adulthood and then they kind of self-report about it um yeah so i agree yeah. this is something that is really important and should be much more recognized and much more awareness about emotional maltreatment should be uh, should be raised as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a really strong message here, as you say, because it it may be easier to observe physical, you know, the signs of physical abuse in children. This stuff may be a lot more below the radar and harder for people in educational systems or or, or healthcare professionals to pick up, but it. The, the data seem to suggest that it's, you know, it's a very strong predictor of what happens next, which is really a key thing. Uh, I mean, I guess that it, it begs the question about whether, you know, screening for this more uh, commonly might be a better strategy. I mean, that's a very big question overall, I think. Uh, I know from my experience as a physician, obviously, that, you know, in terms of picking up physical abuse, I think healthcare systems have got much better at proactively going to look for those kind of problems but it really still is is very much you know people have to present in some way to somebody and then if they spot things they they can follow up with them but that's not the same as actively trying Sweet. to go yeah yeah I mean that's a very big question isn't it whether that would be an interesting you know good thing and not to only go screening, but also assessing it so not only you know yes or no but actually trying to understand the, the origins of it and the types of it and like the whole context of it as well, like the context of abuse itself. Um, I think it's very important. Some argue that it 
would be also useful to have it as a part of like a you know general health assessment um, in childhood adolescence like to really have such a file because it could also explain later in life why you know some people have uh, not only mental but also somatic health problems we see this in individuals with childhood trauma experience as well more engagement in unhealthy lifestyle behaviors comorbidity between mental and somatic disorders and so on Yes. Yeah. And I was going to say that that's something that I neglected to, to, to mention here, but you also looked, didn't you, at physical illness and over time. And as you say, there is an over indexing of, of poorer physical outcomes. And of course, there's a lot of questions about, you know, the sort of chicken and egg with mental health issues and physical uh, issues here as well. Um, but actually, the downstream impacts is is very substantial both physically as well as mentally isn't it on, on people who've suffered this kind of abuse yeah and especially comorbidity between the two so that really seemed to be a prevalent in people with childhood trauma indeed it's really difficult to disentangle the temporality between variables like what comes next is it mental health problem uh, or somatic health problem and, and that follows mental health problem like it's it's really difficult to disentangle that and they also likely influence each other right when they're present um but yeah much more research is needed on that on like prospective longitudinal designs uh, that follow cohorts of children over time yeah yeah um, so, so I, before I get to um, some pieces around the neurobiology, because you've alluded a bit to it when you were talking about hypersensitivity, hyperreactivity to what I guess in the trade they call negative valence stimuli, which is, you know, negative, negative events yeah. yeah, going on around them. But before I get into that, there were some other things that I, I noticed that, you know, at the history end that I thought were very interesting. Um, so you obviously also looked at the effects of things like divorce, uh, you know, parental divorce, going into care and, of course, you know, loss of, you know, death of, of um, you know, parents as well. And there, there wasn't, I, my read was there wasn't as strong an effect of some of those parameters in comparison with, with emotional neglect and emotional trauma. Was, was that a surprise to people when they saw those data? Yeah, indeed. Uh, so these childhood life events, as they're called, or like household dysfunction events, uh, including parental divorce or early parental loss, they were not really consistently associated with psychopathology, its severity or chronicity, which I think on one hand is quite surprising because previous studies did show associations between these events and the onset of mood disorders. But I think it's also possible to explain that. Uh, because more recent evidence in, in last years uh, really show that when you compare various early life uh, experiences, childhood trauma has a much more profound impact on psychopathology compared to these household dysfunction events. So considering that the prevalence of these events is quite low in NASDA, it could be that there's simply no power to determine the significant events that have really small effect. I would suggest to maybe better make some kind of cumulative score, uh, adding you know childhood trauma together with this household dysfunction events, and then maybe we would see some additive effect on top of that. Um, and also studies show that some moderating factors can play a role in association between these events and psychopathology outcomes, for example, family climate. So there were studies showing that association between parental um, loss in childhood and uh, onset of depression is there when actually family relationships are poor. So this could be a moderating factor as well that plays a role. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I got thinking a bit of also about the divorce situation where divorce can be a tra traumatic event, but of course there may be reasons why a family breaks up that could end in a more positive situation for the child as well I guess I mean exactly. I, I guess I guess there's com complexity there isn't there about that and if parents, a, yeah and if parents actually manage to keep up really you know healthy and strong relationships afterwards with children so the child doesn't really suffer as much let's say due to the divorce I think this really is a potential moderating factor um, on psychopathology later in life yeah 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 so it's interesting so it might be that as you say that there are some 
there's mitigation here and that although it can be a very difficult event <clears throat> for in you know the way it's managed and, and yes. the outcomes of it may actually end up being a positive factor as well as a negative one I guess in a way that some of the other you know the trauma components you you've outlined clearly have a detrimental effect there's no upside to any of those other things that, that the child might experience <clears throat> I, I was going to also ask you you, you alluded to this a, a, a bit as well about uh, maladaptive personality characteristics and also you talked a bit about <clears throat> cognitive reactivity styles because to me that was also really really interesting because it's very easy to look at you know DSM diagnoses and the sort of pigeonholes around that <clears throat> this sort of goes out into a broader sphere doesn't it about um, other factors in, in the way that somebody may react in the environment around them and you know we'll get on to this to talk about thing you know the way they process what comes into them at a social level and how they handle that so you absolutely found some impact there as well as these sort of hard diagnoses if you like could you talk a bit more about that yeah so uh, indeed individuals with childhood trauma within nesta were really characterized with with more like maladaptive personality characteristics and also cognitive reactivity styles uh, such as higher levels of neuroticism, hopelessness, rumination, um, lower levels of extroversion, optimism, agreeableness, and also interestingly, neuroticism actually uh, seemed to moderate association between childhood trauma and depressive symptoms. So people with high levels of neuroticism really seem to be more vulnerable to the impact of childhood trauma and have higher depressive symptoms later in life. Um, and regarding the DSM diagnoses, uh, so I think it's very robustly known that higher levels of neuroticism and also rumination are associated with axis one disorders. So mood disorders, anxiety disorders, uh, also PTSD, eating and sleep disorders, substance use disorders. So like a range of really disorders, but not only the onset of them, uh, but also the maintenance and persistence of them. And that's why we think that this could be one of the psychological mechanisms of childhood trauma, really making individuals with childhood trauma have poorer course of psychopathology throughout the life. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I, I think that's fascinating because I know it, it's interesting with the term neuroticism that I think things have come in and out of favour within psychiatry. And I think that it has been unfashionable not that long ago to talk about neuroticism. But as you say, it seems to be a very strong predictor of those disorders, but also it might be within, say, depression, the kind of patterns of depression that, that you see. So, you know, are they more reactive to the environment as a driver? Um, and again, that some people don't like that classification around so-called exogenous and endogenous depression. But I think it's really interesting about the differences in phenotype of, of patients and how that may track back biologically but also to think you know life events I mean to me I've seen threads in the literature and the data around neuroticism and reactivity and the nature of the symptoms that the patient may have the pattern of their depression that seem interesting and you know it doesn't look I mean none of these things are concrete as in you know they're not total predictors but there does seem to be a bit of a lilt there and it, it got me thinking about are we going back to that view of exogenous and endogenous I don't I don't know whether you how you feel about that but uh, um, yeah it's I an old-fashioned way of thinking about it but uh, yeah I think it's really interesting I think it's also interesting that neuroticism is a potential mediator but also moderator um, in childhood trauma context and um, I also thought before that childhood trauma could be really associated with specific you know, dimensions of depression. That's why we looked into that as well. But we honestly saw that it was associated with like all dimensions of depression. Uh, so it, that included also uh, melancholic and hedonic, um, atypical energy related. Uh, so it, it really seemed to be associated with severity of symptoms overall. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't really see a lot of specificity for specific symptoms if we can say that i see more into the severity of the disorder yeah yeah and it's it, it it's it's really interesting because i say i've seen threads of this uh i i think it 
there's a risk also of overinterpreting bits of data that fit with you know a hypothesis that one may have a, a about this <clears throat> and I, I know that overall it's been a if you take depression and the, you know eight questions that typically sit in an assessment of, of this that trying to produce factors if you like from this has, has been very hard and there are data that suggest you might be able to do that <clears throat> but but equally there are data that refute that it's quite contradictory I would say <clears throat> so it's interesting yeah. in your study that you've ended up you know severity yes but those specific factors less so yeah and I think it's really possible to find many things you know really trying to support your own hypotheses because there are papers that really focus on childhood trauma let's say in a somatic depression and then childhood trauma and melancholic depression and then there are papers that actually find associations with both like for example we find also in our study I think also what we really see is that there are various symptoms in childhood trauma patients that are across disorders. So it's not only in depressive and anxiety disorders, but it's really across various access one disorders. So such as increased symptoms of uh, like suicidality, for example, uh, earlier onset of disorder. So this is, I think, also really important to take into account in future research that maybe we shouldn't only focus on a specific disorder, but try to look at childhood trauma psychopathology a bit more transdiagnostically, because this could really also help in uh, you know preventions and interventions later in life yeah yeah and i think <clears throat> that in itself is a really interesting point because of course a lot of these uh people who become patients in the sense they've got diagnosis they often have multiple psychiatric multiple. comorbidities don't they and it, it's an interesting question in itself that they may have got a diagnosis of say depression first but they may have you know significant anxiety issues that didn't get diagnosed at the same time and actually that may be their even their predominant problem but sometimes the data can be confounding can't they because it it's not clear cut about what they get diagnosed with and when and how they relate to each other right um, and it's not always that we have such data right on like when was the onset at like which age and and it's really not that much of specific data that we could really disentangle the order as well yeah, right. And I think, I mean, actually, that's a it. it, it it's uh, in, in the work I do in clinical trials, it, it can be an issue as well because it's it's easy to classify people. But understanding that again, back to the chicken and egg bit here, or you know, it, it's a hard thing to do. And of course, patients may be sub threshold for certain diagnosis, but still have very significant symptomatology, like for example, anxiety, where they may not have a GAD diagnosis or a panic disorder diagnosis, but still have lots of anxiety symptoms um, which affect them. Um, so it's complex, isn't it? Um, so I, I was going to um, shift gear a little bit because we you'd mentioned before about this this issue around sensitivity and reactivity. I mean, one of the things that I think is fantastic about your 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 study is that you also try to get back to some of the neurobiological roots here and you mentioned imaging I know also you looked at cortisol and the whole you know HPA axis as well as as, as part of this um, and I know you remember when we, we we first met at the ECMP and we were talking about this because I've been involved in a drug that used to be has some effect on the amygdala uh, and this this uh, piece around amygdala reactivity top-down control from the prefrontal cortex um, and how this all interrelates and, and certainly in the literature there's been an examination uh, using static and functional imaging about the amygdala and there appears to be this relationship with what's going on there and this top-down control in, in, in subjects who've had experienced childhood trauma and these hypotheses that effectively may be wiring people up in a way that that means they are more hypersensitive and hyperreactive and and that to me is absolutely fascinating that you may be able to go back to the neurobiology here of what traumatic experiences may do to to, to people at that level can, can you talk about that because I'm probably paraphrasing some of what's been going on in your trial but I, I, that was fascinating to me 
Yeah, so maybe just overall going back to the idea of how potentially childhood trauma works biologically um, is that research really shows that childhood trauma alters the functioning of the HPA axis, uh, which is commonly marked by significantly elevated level of basal cortisol in children, but also later in life in adolescents and adults. Um, and we also see this blunted cortisol response to stress later in life. And because of this really heightened level of cortisol, it is assumed that the glucocorticoid uh, receptor gets overactivated, which results in the abnormal development of the stress system functioning. And it not only includes, of course, HP axis, but also other stress systems, so the immune system and the autonomic nervous system. And then because of this abnormal stress system functioning, uh, individuals with childhood trauma are likely more vulnerable uh, to really develop depressive and anxiety disorders, also somatic disorders, and also comorbidity between uh, mental and somatic disorders as well, right? So the precise mechanism also involved in the brain is not fully understood. Um, it is possible that childhood trauma-related uh, like brain alterations. As you said, we mostly see this in amygdala, hippocampus, uh, prefrontal cortex, so really areas involved in emotion regulation, self-reflecting processing. Uh, they could also impact on stress system functioning and also manifest uh, later on as higher levels of neuroticism. A bit more evidence from animal studies suggests that it could be the other way around uh, because of the sustained activation of the stress system functioning, uh, including the HP axis hyperactivity and inflammation. Um, actually, this impacts the brain development. So there is, uh, you know, the structural changes, functional changes, neuroinflammation. And then this, again, back impacts on the stress system functioning and makes individuals more sensitive to stress and manifest as neuroticism. So that, you know, real temporal associations are not fully clearly understood yet. Um, and at some point it seems that associations become bidirectional. So brain influences the stress system functioning and the other way around as well. Yeah, no, I mean, to me, this is fascinating because it could provide you know, some some clear steer as to what the underlying neuropathology is, if you like, that we should go at and, and Sorry, consider, yeah. um, which, you know, is, is, is fascinating. And I know, that, I mean, there are a number of academic collaborations and, and companies that have looked into this and are trying to develop against targets that could could, could have an impact, uh, could have an impact on that. I mean, one of the things it, it it's always it's got me interested in is this idea that obviously you take depression I mean it's a heterogeneous uh, condition for sure and and when we're targeting therapeutic strategies it might be that understanding in more detail what is going on neurobiologically obviously would be great that can be extremely hard to get at in a clinical environment as we as we we both know it to me was interesting about whether childhood trauma could be a phenotypic marker for certain biological traits and that could help perhaps enrich populations and certain therapeutic strategies I mean that could be pharmacologic that could be psychotherapeutic as well whether there are different ways of intervening that, that that could be interesting I mean to me we seem quite a long way still from being able to do that um, but if we understand the neurobiology underpinning the impact of childhood trauma we, more, we may be able to, to, to go in that direction and personalise things a bit more, I would hope. Yeah, definitely. And I think we really need more studies that would look um, at the potential biological mechanisms of childhood trauma and really be a bit more comprehensive and integrative. So include multiple markers, multiple stress systems, um, but also not only static uh, but also dynamic markers. Uh, just as an example, in our uh, stress system paper, uh, we didn't really see many significant associations between childhood trauma and stress systems markers in the total sample. So we did see a bit elevated level of cortisol in saliva and inflammation in blood plasma. But for example, uh, in previous papers, they did show kind of more significant associations. So we mm. didn't really expect to see that little. Um, and then on one hand, it could be explained by overrepresentation of psychopathology in our sample because NESDA sample is really 
including a lot of people who remitted and current uh, depressive and anxiety disorders. And we know from previous research and from NESDA research that these people are characterized by significantly dysregulated stress systems. So of course, this could dilute the direct effect of childhood trauma on stress systems markers. But we also used mostly static markers, uh, so not really dynamic markers in response to like acute, let's say, social experimental stress or something like that. And in NESDA, there's not a lot of research on it that we could actually compare and contrast. Um, there was data, though, available on the LPS-stimulated cytokine levels, so the lipopolysaccharide the endotoxin. Um, and we could actually compare the association with the LPS cytokine levels and basal cytokine levels. And then we saw that effects actually were much larger with the LPS cytokine levels, and they even survived adjustment for lifestyle and health. Um, whereas for the basal levels, they were really largely driven by higher levels of BMI, risk of uh, high rates of smoking, and numbers of chronic diseases in individuals with childhood trauma. So I think it's really important to have various stress systems markers, but especially dynamic ones in response to some kind of stimuli. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I, I think that's really interesting. I know from some of the work I've done in the you know clinical trials arena that challenge studies with CCK, for example, or negative valence uh, testing, you know, showing people nasty images, etc., to try and elicit responses uh, and look at them looking physiologically I mean that can be really instructive I mean it's used as a clinical de development tool but it could be interesting as you say to apply that to these populations and see in more detail what the patterns of response are and did you I mean you, you've talked a bit about these biological um, you know and blood-based markers um, sputum-based markers because you also have looked from an imaging perspective as well is, is that right? Yeah, so that there were some studies in NESDA that looked into brain outcomes as well. And I think they did show, of course, structurally that uh, individuals with childhood trauma do show lower, um, let's say, volumes of the hippocamp hippocampus and I think amygdala, but also increased amygdala reactivity to emotional stimuli. So individuals with childhood trauma were actually uh, perceiving uh, facial expressions as more threatening. Uh, as compared to individuals without childhood trauma, which also nicely really bridges to this emotional reactivity and sensitivity. Um, and then what else did we find? Um, was there anything else specific regarding the brain findings that was interesting to you uh, in the review? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I, I was going to ask, was there any functional uh, MRI work or uh, is this all static? imaging because obviously as you say there's these structural pieces and it's very interesting that yes yeah, so, yeah so there were like these paradigms with the with the facial expressions i think so yeah. that was that was the functional part and uh, not not there were not too many significant associations i think this was the one that was uh, really the, the most prominent the amygdala reactivity to, yeah. to facial yeah. expressions and i think uh, i think they find also a bit of the gene environment interaction uh, findings uh, on brain outcomes. So there was a moderation by uh, by some specific genes. For example, individuals who uh, carried the risk allele of the BDNF genotype, uh, the vol 6 met they actually showed significantly reduced um, amygdala and hippocampal volumes. Um, and also individuals who um, carried a risk allele of the um, neuropeptide Y, I think the CLL, that they showed significantly increased amygdalar activity to emotional stimuli. So for these people, it was even stronger, uh, and they really seem to be more sensitive to the impact of childhood trauma. Yeah, yeah, and I think I mean this, uh, of course, back to the sort of nature nurture pieces here. I think that's again of great interest because you know I talked a bit earlier about perhaps you know phenotypic characterization that you could then as you rightly say look even structurally or or behaviorally in these tests to, to understand their patterns of reactivity but then going backwards up the chain I, I I'm sure it's clear that there are going to be people who have you know genetic predisposition and that the interaction then with their childhood experiences could be more profound so they're innately at more risk 
of developing in in a you know aberrant fashion going forwards from a mental health perspective. Um, I know BDNF actually is also a you know potential drug target. I mean, there are people looking at this. I mean, people have got drugs that they believe will get at this, and that's an interesting point in itself as to whether they they might have greater value in people who've had childhood trauma experiences, for example. I mean, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, Definitely. I, mean, I think it, it's still a bit of a criticized field as well, because it's, of course, looking into single genes and genetic effects are often polygenic, right? So there's, I think, much more research that has to be done in terms of like a polygenic risk scores in childhood trauma to make it really a bit more clinically relevant, um, because it's not that we can really focus on one specific gene. Uh, they usually show really small effects and require large sample sizes for applications as well. Uh, but indeed, I think it can still help us to better understand the complexity of childhood trauma and, and who may be a bit more vulnerable to its impact. Yeah, yeah, and I know, I know for sure there are people who, I, I think, in, in my opinion, rightly say that trying to just look at you know, genetics as a way of moving forward therapeutically in Axis 1 disorders is, is not likely to, to yield much value, actually. Um, yeah. You know, trying to find targets by that mechanism is, is, you know, as you say, it's polygenic and relatively small effects, so it's difficult to see how you, you, you weave your way through that. I mean, to me, what's interesting is, you know, we're still treating patients with only a couple of classes of drugs, for example, here that seem to have pretty high level effects and, and may sit above some of those issues. But we're a long way off understanding different you know, neurobiological segments that might exist within depression, for example, and, we, and, 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 and look at that. To me, it's interesting about the interaction between the genetics and these life events and, and, and what implication that may have in drug development. Um, I've not seen people really go at that yet uh, and try and tease that out and actually there's one of the questions I was going to ask you I, I know my own experiences of looking at baseline characteristics of patients in these trials you know let's say depression trials I, I think childhood trauma is very badly recorded if ever recorded actually and we don't try and get much detail do you think that's something we should be doing more of and, and getting better data of and then we can follow through and see how they the outcomes of these patients on different therapeutic modalities? Oh, definitely. I think, first of all, the problem is that really childhood trauma data is not always being collected and analyzed, unfortunately. Um, and if it is, then it's mostly in psychotherapy kind of field, but not, let's say, pharmacotherapy field. And I think it really limits our understanding about, you know, what specific types of, let's say, antidepressants could be more beneficial for these people. And I think we also really need more data, not only about the presence and absence of childhood trauma, but also the severity of childhood trauma as well. Um, as well as, for example, the age of, of when childhood trauma happened to kind of disentangle the developmental sensitive periods. Um, and as you said, it, it would be also really, really important for the to understand like which treatments are better for people with childhood trauma, um, to kind of which, uh, to, how to say, um, if childhood trauma moderates, you know, some associations between a specific treatments and outcomes. But if we just take as an example, my uh, recent meta-analysis, right, where we looked at uh, how mm. individuals with uh, depression and childhood trauma respond to first-line pharmacotherapy and psychotherapy, we actually saw that they responded in a similar manner to people without childhood trauma, which on one hand was surprising. Um, on another hand, they did exhibit significantly increased depression severity before and after treatment. So it does signal that there's still room for improvement and like additional supplementary interventions. And I think Findings in NESDA really point to some therapeutic targets, for example, the stress system dysfunction or unhealthy lifestyle behaviors, as we see that people with childhood trauma also engage in the range of those. And for example, really targeting directly the stress system dysfunction could be a way to go. Uh, for example, using the glucocorticoid receptor antagonist, mifepristone. And this is something that is currently being tested in our department as well. Um, findings are still not known, of course, but I think this is going to 
also shed a bit more light uh, about mm -hmm. the underlying childhood trauma mechanism and uh, whether this kind of treatment could be personalized for individuals with childhood trauma as an add-on to first-line depression uh, treatments. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And I, I, I know we, uh, I've discussed with you before about that meta-analysis, because actually there are data that in individual trials that pointed in different directions, weren't there? I mean, I, I know there's certainly one study that suggested that um, childhood trauma was a very strong negative predictor of the value of giving somebody an SSRI. Um, but actually your data, when you measure analyzed it, it didn't show that kind of effect, which I think was was, was interesting. Um, I, I've always wondered about this anyway with SSRIs, and if you look at their effect on, I mean, access one disorders and beyond, that it seems very blanket, you know, effects across pretty much every question of every domain of every question that you throw at, at, at people. It's very hard to see any kind of real pattern in there of what it's doing. It seems to act at a, I always call it a high level. I don't even know quite what that means, but maybe that's part of the issue here that we don't have therapeutics that get it anything very specifically yet. So it's difficult to see whether there are different directions one one could take. But I think yeah, the measure, yeah. Also, going to your point uh, about the childhood trauma is not always measured. When we were releasing mm. papers for uh, this meta-analysis, we honestly hardly ever found childhood trauma being measured in antidepressant trials, which was a bit disappointing, of course, because mm. we then, you know, never have power to actually try to uh, look at the subgroup analyses, maybe, you know, specific antidepressant matters most for these people, or maybe they benefit the worst from this antidepressant, but we cannot really look into these associations because there's just not enough of power. So, yeah, just going back to the point that we really need to measure and assess childhood trauma in various clinical trials and also epidemiological studies, observational studies to kind of better understand, you know, what are the risk and protective factors and what are the targets for interventions and preventative strategies as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think uh, to me, another very strong message out of your work is it's not just a question of trying to collect some data that the, the understanding about the nature of the trauma, the frequency of it. I mean, all of these things could matter because there, there are, you know, back to devil in the detail about these relationships and actually uh, just asking a simple question of did a subject have childhood trauma or not, which is what I've seen in a number of analyses, seems a very low level question to try and try and uh, look at. Yes. And it can still show, like many studies still show significant effects, like significant difference between the groups, even when it is um, kind of assessed in this way. But I think it doesn't really show the complexity of trauma. And when we really look at the cumulative, let's say, total score or severity, we almost always see that those response affect, which I think is much more important here to understand that it's not about a specific type, but it's also about the whole context of abuse. So the comorbidities, the frequencies, that really matters and that should be assessed. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I, I was going to ask you, um, obviously this trial has been running for some time. It's yielded lots of fantastic data in, in these different areas that you've you've mentioned, whether they're you know, outcomes based or, or neurobiology. I mean, it, it, a fascinating collection. Where, where is it going next? What What's next on the agenda? And, and what can we expect to see in the future? So there's not a lot for the future of, of NESDA, honestly. Uh, it is this really long um, study that has been going for, for many years. Um, and I don't think there is a lot that we could add in terms of childhood trauma. Um, in the last wave, they did uh, add additional data on ecological monitor assessment, for example, which I looked into this a little bit. Uh, so we really saw that individuals with childhood trauma did uh, show increased affect variability, um, instability um, in everyday life, which I think also nicely bridges uh, with other findings showing that really individuals with childhood trauma are more emotionally reactive. Um, but for NASA, in terms of childhood trauma, I don't think that there is really a lot more that could be done. Um, I think there are more suggestions for future research. Um, and regarding future research, I really think we really need more prospective longitudinal studies, but that they would really follow cohorts of children over time. So really go back into childhood 
and try to disentangle the temporality between variables up to adulthood. Because if we measure everything only at one time point, uh, which is what most of the research currently uh, relies on, on cross-sectional data, when you know childhood trauma is retrospectively reported, psychiatric status and psychopathology is already there, somatic disorders are of course already there, then it's really difficult to answer these questions about temporality, causality. But if we really had these prospective longitudinal studies where children are followed over time, at, at least that proximity would be quite close to when childhood trauma happened, then we could really understand what comes first, uh, which factors come after childhood trauma and then after the development of psychopathology. Yeah, I mean, I'd, and uh, I couldn't echo that more. I think this is a something that needs to be done. And honestly, I think the impact of this at a societal level could be, you know, quantum. I mean, I think in my experience in the last you know, quarter of a century, we've come a huge long way in understanding the impact that childhood experiences have on people's trajectory from a you know, psychiatric point of view, but you know, just at a societal level, I think this is a you know key thing to 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 look at. I know we talked a bit about what strategies you may put in place for people who've had childhood trauma and treatments they may receive if they have a diagnosis later. But the the concept of what prevention looks like here and how that's managed is a surely of huge interest to future generations. Um, Very much. Yeah, I think I think prevention is extremely important. I would say number one, uh, because what we see is that childhood trauma, of course, is a very potent risk factor for poor mental and somatic health, but it is a preventable risk factor, right? So much more effort uh, and attention should be given to prevention and trying to really reduce the reoccurrence of childhood trauma, because we see that the worst outcomes are for people with severe trauma. So those ones who experience really multiple types and frequencies. And I think raising public awareness and education, that's the number one thing, because really that people and general public would understand that childhood trauma is super prevalent and that it is really having a lot of negative outcomes, uh, especially for less visible childhood trauma types, as we talked about, emotional maltreatment. Uh, I think this could really reduce the stigma and increase the recognition of it and encourage early interventions, because I think the goal is really to try to prevent maltreatment and reduce it. So like early parenting interventions, especially for at-risk populations. As you mentioned, this generation, but also further generation, we know that people with childhood trauma history are more likely to maltreat. So I think if we could focus on this at-risk populations, that, that already would be great. And then also trying to foster some protective factors, for example, in children who already experience maltreatment. So maybe try to help them with effective emotion regulation strategies, social skills, and already target symptoms that exist to really prevent the poor course of them later in life. So there are, I think, many things that could be Im implemented as preventative strategies, and they're really important to focus on. Oh, well, thank you very much. That That's a great uh, message to end on. So thank you very much for taking the time to uh, speak with us. Thank you.